0: To turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 15. We are going to read uh, a right few verses for this section as we move through these uh, chapters in Exodus, which are centered in the wilderness. Um, so Exodus 15 and verse 22 is where we will start. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then, that is, after the crossing of the Red Sea and the singing of that great psalm of celebrating the Lord's victory over his enemies, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There, the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. In the chapter 16. Verse, sorry, we'll we'll read to verse 5. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days down to verse 17 of the same chapter. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it out by the Omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, "'No one is to keep any of it until morning.'" However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. Verse 35. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years. Until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And then finally, the first seven verses of chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Amen to the reading of God's Word. Now, as I say, folks, we have come to the sort of middle chapters in the book of Exodus, which tell us what happened in the days following Israel's deliverance from Egypt. In fact, everything that is recorded in chapters 15 to 18 took place over the space of just two months. So remember the context. God has redeemed Israel. He has set his people free and he is now journeying with them to their promised inheritance. It's vital that we bear this in mind. God has not left his people on their own to make their own way to Canaan. He is with them every step of the way. The pillar of cloud by day and fire by night is their constant companion. God is committed to accompanying his people along their pilgrim path. And as he does, he trains them to trust him as they encounter various hardships and hazards. So this period of wandering in the wilderness is not to be wasted. It's to form a vital part of their education. And you'll not be surprised that once again, we can see a tremendous overlap between Israel's experience then And our own as believers today. Our pilgrim path. By which God leads us to heaven and to home. Is still one of troubles and trials. And the wilderness that is this world. Is still God's school for his people. Where faith is tested. And character is formed. We have been left in this world for a reason. And the circumstances of our lives are never the result of random chance. Rather, they are ours by divine design as our tutors in God's curriculum for our education and development. Now, I'm sure you noticed in the passages we read that in each of the four locations where Israel arrived, God taught them a lesson about trusting and obeying him. And he did it by using the essentials of life, the supply of food and drink, Important at any time, but absolutely critical as you make your way through the desert. So we've got four learning locations to visit and consider tonight. And here's what they are. Number one, bitterness at Marah. Number two, refreshment at Elam. Number three, hunger at sin. That is the desert of sin. that doesn't have anything to do with moral sin. And number four, thirst at Rephidim. So we're going to start with bitterness at Marah. Let me underline what I said earlier. God led Israel through Moses to Marah. They did not arrive there by chance, and they had not strayed off the path of obedience. Mara was on the map for God's people then, and it's still on the map for his people today. How quickly things changed. no longer was Israel singing songs of salvation on the shore as they had been earlier in chapter 15. Now they are whining in the wilderness. But maybe we shouldn't be too quick to criticize them. We're told that they trekked for three days without finding water. When on the horizon There appeared to be a watery oasis. When they got there, however, the celebrations soon gave way to complaints because the water was undrinkable. It was bitter. How disappointing! How devastating! Israel is walking in the path of obedience. And yet it appears that God just hasn't come through for them. He's let them down. He's allowed bitterness, literal and metaphorical bitterness, into their lives. Suffice to say that Israel's preferred travel itinerary did not include a stop off at Mara. And we can make the same mistake. But listen, brothers and sisters, there will be no maturity without Mara. If we are to grow in our trust in God, then one of the principal ways that this will happen. Will be through learning to negotiate the bitterness of disappointment in our lives. You come to the New Testament. This is the message that James shared with the saints who were passing through trials. Count it all joy. It's the message that Peter offers to believers who are on the end of persecution. Don't think that something strange is happening to you. God is working in this, purifying you. It's the message that Paul gives to would-be servants of God. Oh, to serve God, you are going to waste away in the outer mountain. But you're going to be renewed inwardly. You see, our faith needs to acquire the quality of endurance. And that can only come through negotiating the challenges and disappointments of life. The truth we need to hang on to is that all the challenges and disappointments we face are those which God permits, controls, and is present in. Israel was too quick to complain and to question Moses' leadership and not throwing any stones. But it is clear as we read on that they needn't have done either of those things. They had the option of holding on in faith and trusting God with their bitter situation. And I find what happened next very instructive. Moses brought Israel's need, Israel's complaint to God. And God told him what to do. Moses was to take a piece of wood, or it's the word for tree. And God showed him it and told him to throw it into the bitter waters. As soon as he did that, the water's bitterness was neutralized and it became fit to drink. God was teaching Israel that they could trust him with their disappointments and bitter circumstances. Along the pilgrim path. I say it in a spirit of humility. But I wonder. How often. As believers. We fail to respond appropriately. To disappointment in our lives. And as a result. We miss the opportunity to develop in our faith. You know, sooner or later, the why did God allow this question? It's going to surface in our lives. What will help us negotiate our disappointment and turn bitter water sweet, or drinkable at least? You know what the answer to that is? The addition of the tree. If we keep the truth of Calvary with us, the ultimate demonstration of the reality and the extent of God's love for us, we will be able to manage the maras in our pilgrimage with God. And let's be honest, some maras may be just so bitter that it will only be the truth of the cross of Christ that will hold us together and take us through. And don't miss God's reassuring words to Israel as they pass through this testing, bitter experience. Chapter 15, verse 26. Walk in my ways, I will not harm you. I will not bring on you the punishments that I brought on Egypt. I am the Lord who heals you. What a precious thing it is to know that God's discipline in our lives is always loving discipline. Designed to develop us in our relationship with him. It is never punishment for our sins as his people. So that's bitterness at Mara. What follows it? Refreshment at Elam. I don't spend too long on this, for it's actually only one verse. But it's worth stopping at Elam. Chapter 15, verse 27. You see, if Marah was on the map, and it was, and it will be, So was Elam. God had ordained a place of shade and rest and refreshment for his people. There was a true oasis awaiting them. Israel could and should have trusted God, He wasn't going to let them down. And as we picture, Israel at Elam, in that idyllic scene, can't help but think of Psalm 23 verse 2, he leads me beside still waters, quiet waters. He restores, he refreshes my soul. And if we have been on the pilgrim path for any length of time, we'll know that God punctuates our Christian experience with elams. Times when our backs are not to the wall. When life has a certain calmness to it. We get to drink deeply of the word of God and our enjoyment of salvation is a sort of foretaste of heaven already in our souls. But here's the thing, guys. Guys, Elam is only a staging post on the journey to our inheritance. It isn't the destination. As Israel would soon discover, there were more lessons to learn. Indeed, there were battles to fight, as we'll see next week. Elams are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And I would say, let's enjoy our Elams. Let's use them wisely to drink deeply. But know that for our own good and development, God will soon move us on. Nobody gets to stay at Elam. And don't look for or expect a Christian experience. That only contains elms. Remember that every oasis we counter encounter is surrounded by wilderness. Number three, hunger at sin. Now, this is where we really get into the meat of this. All of chapter sixteen of Exodus deals with the manna. And I'm going to have to content myself with just making some observations for you to think about for yourself. I'm not going to comment on the quail that was provided because that was not a regular thing and God's instruction of Israel was wrapped up with the manna. So I want to highlight five things for you. First, It's simply remarkable to listen to Israel's revisionism as hunger set in. What about Exodus chapter 16, verse 3, for a rewriting of the past? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Whoa! (laughs) Egypt sounds like it was just one great big banquet. Their description of their experience in Egypt just didn't conform to reality in any way, shape, or form. And can I suggest that there's a lesson here for us? When difficulties come into our lives and when following Christ gets really costly and remaining true to God is genuinely demanding, don't rewrite the past. Don't romanticize your lostness. No matter how tough the going gets, never forget What it was to be without Christ and without hope in this world. Don't fall for the devil's lies. The second thing to say is that we need to grasp what the whole point of the manna was. Obviously, the manna was God's means of keeping the people alive in the wilderness. It was their daily source of food. But it was more than that. It presented Israel with a daily exercise in trust and obedience. Think about it. Israel was to gather enough for each day and no more. I'll come to the Sabbath in a minute. But that meant, put yourselves in their situation. That meant you went to bed each and every night learning to trust in God's provision for tomorrow. The manna was an invitation To lean in to God's faithfulness. But what do we read? There were some who thought it would be a good idea not to do what God said. And instead to gather more than they should. And store it up for the next day. And when tomorrow came it stank. And was full of maggots. There was nothing subtle about that lesson on disobedience. And then when commanded to gather double rations on the eve of the Sabbath, there were still some who went out to gather fresh supplies on the Sabbath, and they found none. Can you see what God is doing? He's training his people, using their daily bread to teach them this lesson And I'll let the words of Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 drive home that lesson. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the same way that the consumption of physical food is essential to maintain our physical life, so is the reception of the Word of God to maintain our spiritual life and vitality. Through learning to trust and obey God day by day, we grow in our relationship with Him And we find all that we need for our pilgrimage through this world. That's the second thing. Third, let's not miss the importance that God placed on the Sabbath. In connection with the provision of the manna. Chapter 16 verse 29 says this. Bear in mind... That the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone's to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. We would do well to remember this on the pilgrim journey. The Sabbath was God's idea. Yes, the Sabbath was given for man and not man for the Sabbath, but God enshrined the principle of rest into Israel's pilgrimage. It was for Israel's benefit. The Sabbath scheduled rest, it offered the opportunity to stop, to reflect. And to worship. And God drove this lesson home through the double provision of the manna on the Friday of each week, the eve of the Sabbath. Now, when Israel arrived at Sinai, it was commanded to keep the Sabbath as a matter of law, but its purpose remained the same. Now, perhaps you would want me to stress that there is no New Testament command for us as Christians to observe the Sabbath. We are not under the law in the sense that Israel was. Yes, but please note that what is recorded here in Exodus chapter 16 is before the law was given. In fact, The principle of Sabbath rest is something that goes back to the creation account itself. It's something that God knows that humanity needs and that will benefit from if we use it in the way that he intends. So as believers, let's not attempt to be wiser than God. He knows we need the principle and the practice of Sabbath rest in some form or other on our pilgrim journey. If I might be more specific to our Christian context, protect your Sundays as far as you can. Prioritize Spiritual rest and refreshment over the responsibilities and attractions of the world. Set out your stall. What we have the opportunity to do together on Sundays is of greater value than all those other things that we do the rest of the week in our lives. How revealing are our Sunday commitments? What a litmus test they give us of our priorities. What an uncovering of what we truly value and where our treasure is found. There's a fourth lesson in the manna. And it's one that the Apostle Paul takes up in Second Corinthians 8 where he's discussing how we handle material resources that God has given to us. The Israelites were told to gather what they needed and they were given the guide by God of one omer per person. They think an omer is about 1.4 kilograms. When they came to measure it out, they discovered that there was enough for everyone. The surplus gathered by some balanced the shortfall of others. And Paul says, what a great principle that gives us as Christians. If we have more than we need of material resources, then let's share with our brothers and sisters who haven't enough. And it's that simple. He says it in black and white. God desires that there should be an equality within the body of Christ. With resources flowing to need. And not being stored or hoarded for personal indulgence. And with head bowed, I ask... How will we fare at the judgment seat of Christ when our bank balances and our investment portfolios and our possessions and our expenditures come under the assessment of the Lord himself? We are stewards of everything that God has given to us. In an ultimate sense, we own nothing. Fifthly and finally, in respect of the manna, Israel was never to forget God's faithfulness shown towards them in the provision of the manna. Moses was instructed to take an omer of manna and place it in a jar which would then be placed in the Ark of the Covenant itself, God's throne. God's faithfulness memorialized in the midst of his people. Israel must never forget that their God sent them bread from heaven to meet their need in the wilderness. And we as Christians know that God has done something even more wonderful again. We go to John chapter 6 and hear Jesus telling us that he is the true bread of heaven, the true manna. And whoever eats of this bread will never hunger again and will never perish. Whoever eats this bread has eternal life, And God will raise him up at the last day. Can we ever forget the coming down of the Savior from heaven to give us the bread of life? Fourth and finally, thirst at Rephidim. Israel's next learning location was Rephidim. And if you read on in Exodus 17, you'll see they actually had a double lesson there. First, God instructed them once again concerning his provision for them. And then after that, he instructed them in the art of war so that his people would know how to fight. And that's where we're going next time with Joshua and the Amalekites. Israel learned about God's provision and his protection at Rephidim. Now, no matter how sympathetic we might feel towards the people as they seem to just move from one test to the next, I think we'll have to admit that they were slow to learn at best. Indeed, what we now find when we come to Rephidim is a real escalation in the level of petulance that they displayed. Previously, we read that they grumbled against Moses. Now it's full-blown quarreling. In fact, things were so tense that Moses feared for his life. Now, remember, all this is happening within a two-month period Of God's great deliverance from Egypt. And the heart of Israel's sin this time was chapter 17 verse 2. They were putting the Lord to the test. That means they were questioning his loyalty towards them. The goodness of his intentions. And the reality of his presence with them. Now, that's an incredibly serious thing for a people to do who've just been delivered from Egypt and have been sustained every day since as they've made their way through a hostile wilderness. It's entirely appropriate for God to test Israel's obedience, but it is utterly unacceptable for Israel to test God's faithfulness. So how will God respond to this insult to his faithfulness? To this calling into question? The reality of his love for his people? Here's how God will respond. Moses, stand in front of the people. Gather some of the elders... And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile in judgment. I will come and I will stand before you at the rock of Horeb. And you're to use that staff to strike the rock. Where I am standing. And when you strike that rock, water will come out and the people will drink. I once heard John Piper describe this as possibly the most shocking verse in the whole of the Old Testament. God's response. To the people's questioning of his love for them, his loyalty to them, was to be struck in judgment before them. And I'm hoping your mind is running ahead of you. (coughs) How is it that we as sinners can know for sure that God loves us? That he wants to save us. That he will be faithful to us if we commit ourselves to him. How do we know it? Well, we need to visit another rocky outcrop. Where once again, God stood before the people and the elders of Israel. But this time, it was no symbolic striking of God, but the real thing. In all the horror of Calvary, all of man's rebellion and rejection and angst at God was placed upon the Son of God And the rod of divine justice fell on him that we might be spared. But oh, what living water flowed from that momentous act. Water that quenches our thirst, that meets our need, That delights our soul. Water that if we drink of it. Leaves us that we will never thirst again. God's love. Calvary love. Will sustain and satisfy his people. Throughout their pilgrim journey. And forevermore. We're done. May God help us. To be good learners. As we make our way with him. To our promised inheritance. Let's learn the lessons. Let's grow up. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlerayfellowship.com. God bless.